Take a moment to just a few seconds to put away the casualness that we sometimes come with and replace it with reverence. Almighty Father in heaven, we are heavy laden this morning, needing grace. 
We need that perfect grace, Jesus' life and blood poured out at Calvary, that none should boast but in the cross that allowed our salvation. In accordance with Pastor Aaron's message last week, Father, trigger godly sorrow, driving repentance, which, which draws us close to you in spirit and truth. Father, strip our self-centered focus on earthly consequences of sinful shortcomings. Turn our heart's eye instead to mourning our sin in earnest prayer and fasting, framed only by the cross's finished work. Temper us in earnest humility to confess our failures first to you and then to one another. Spark the love, submission, and obedience to your sovereign lordship that ignites cleansing Holy Spirit fire on our corrupt, idol-making hearts. Broaden our peripheral discernment to grieve the world's sin and evil per Satan's design. So in your full armor, we can boldly take Christ to every outpost, sharing the gospel that sets captive hearts free while forgiving wrongs done to us. Break us and remold us under the weight of your unchanging word, driving us into, driving into us each day your word. Finally, Father, give us patience to wait on you in the storms of life. Let us joyfully accept your will, no matter how deep the valley we go through, learning, as Spurgeon said, to kiss the waves that slam us into the rock of ages. Teach us that our mourning is not in vain, as your crowns of beauty, oil of joy, and garments of praise await us just around the corner. Father, we lift up the crises that are rocking our local, national, and global governments. Bring your permanent peace, ending wars, and healing victims of natural and man-made disasters. Be glorified in these problems and their resolutions, causing many souls to come to Christ in their losses. Bless the beautiful feet of the missionaries addressing global suffering in the power of your word. Heal the sick in our body. Undergird our pastors and leaders to fulfill their challenging responsibilities. Finally, put your hand on the children of this church. Hedge them in your safety. Multiply the children's ministry's gospel seeds, watering them with living water so the youngsters' hearts bear godly fruit over their entire lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Good morning. My name is my name is Seng Chia, and I'm from Singapore. Um, I'm going to share my testimony. So, E equals M C squared. That's the scientific theory that a lot of people know about, especially people in the scientific world. Um, so that's what I believe. How everything works. That's how I believe that there was a scientific explanation to everything that circles around my life. That's what I believe when I was uh, growing up as a child. Um, 
But as Einstein, the scientist who called it, right, it's, it's the theory of relativity. It is a theory, and it's relative to something. It is therefore not absolute. So it came to my, in my, my journey of life, it came to, I came to a point where I, at some point, pondered that there's got to be something that's absolute, something that's magnificent, something that's more powerful, something that, someone that's omnipotent. And I got to know Christ. He is our creator and, and uh, he is my savior. So I was born in, and raised in a traditional Chinese family in Singapore. My parents, my grandparents, they, they were Taoist. So I held incense and I prayed to the heavens and to the ancestors when it was time to pay respects because my parents told me to do so, right? I didn't know better. Um, so in Singapore, superstition is a, it's a big thing. There's, don't do this, don't do that, because you might offend some god or some, something like that. It was a confusing life. Um, I attended a Catholic primary school and secondary school for 10 years, right? Six years and then another four years there. Uh, so people would think that Catholic school then, you know, you come to know Christ. So I was really very familiar, therefore, with the concept of prayer, the concept of the Virgin Mary and Jesus. But in a school setting, uh, in a, uh, an all-boys school particularly, uh, and being a kid, and like most kids, or maybe some, uh, being mischievous, you know, there's always things that we did, and then we got in trouble, and we get we would get punished by the the, the priests who ran the schools, right? So it became a, a show, an entertainment for the classmates who saw their fellow classmates being punished. It was like entertainment. It it therefore didn't help me in my passage to Christ, right? To me. The priests, they, they were more like disciplinary masters rather than testimonies of Christianity. So that added to my confusion, to my confusion right? The, the Taoist life outside of school and the, the 10 years that I spent in school being so-called in, in a Christian environment, that didn't help me at all. Um, it was confusing. Um, so to me, Religion at that time was like just a passing ideology. To me at that time, it was like, okay, study, learn something useful so that you, know, you do something with your life later on. So that was my, me as a child. So in Singapore, it's about being practical. I was taught to be, one day you gotta be either a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, and so on, so on, you know, because these are all practical, uh, uh, Professions, so I don't read. I don't read a lot. I'm not that good at memory. So hey, but this is are my kids out there. Not a reason to not read. <laughs> um, but I thought, and I felt that I was good in science and math. So I said, okay, I will pursue engineering. So my classmates and friends, we would talk about science day in day out. We would explain everything from a science perspective. There's a reason that science could explain. We even said that we as human uh, beings, our bodies were a complex uh, chemical reaction. 
our emotions, and even when we died, there was an explanation for it because the chemical reaction stopped, therefore we died. Um, so science gave an answer to a curious mind, at least for me. Right? So, so hey, that, that's it. I know, I know everything. That's good. You know? My life changed when I, when I turned 16. My dad passed away, so my mom had to keep the family together. I was 16. My brother and sister, they were early, already in their early 20s. So I was the youngest one. Um, shortly after I joined the National Service, or what we call in Singapore uh, military service, I was in there for two and a half years. It was maybe it was an escape for me, right? Because my life changed and I joined the army. I was there for two and a half years. I didn't see my family a whole lot. I met a lot of people. It built character because I did a lot of what I would call once in a lifetime kind of things, you know, holding a rifle, getting under a helicopter, doing all kinds of stuff that normal people don't do. So it was good, it was exciting, but it wasn't an environment that helped me with my, with my uh, uh, religious belief, right? But it was an escape. So fast forward, after military, I, I joined, the, uh, I came to the US to officially pursue my engineering uh, studies. So come to the US, I came alone, it was like a newfound independence, a new life for me. But boy, was I in for a surprise. It, it, it's, it wasn't easy, but yet it was peaceful. It was peaceful, and I'll talk about that, why. At some point in my life, I, I was paycheck to paycheck, and I think I had less than, or maybe a few hundred dollars in my wallet, right? But yet, everything was good because I, there was some peace in me, right? It must have come from God at that time, but I didn't really connect to that. Um, but as, upon graduation, you know, and then I started thinking more, it's like, wow, this, this is not easy. What am I going to do? What, what is happening? I, I think I'm reaching a point where something needs to happen. I became, uh, you know, I started thinking more, right? It's not just about that life in Singapore. Everything was provided. Everything was kind of given to me. So I want to share this, uh, this, this uh, verse with you. It's uh, from Psalm chapter nine, uh, 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamb unto my feet, the light unto my path. So that meant a lot to me. At that time, uh, I had many friends. I had a host family there. I met Jenny when I was there. And God worked through me. God worked through my friends, worked through my heart, gave me you know, uh, a path forward that I could understand, a path forward that, that if I remain faithful, that, that there is a way forward. And that's my journey. Um, so that's how I came to know Christ. Uh, God has always been there for me. He has always provided for me. But it took me a long time to actually recognize it and, you know, and actually do something about it. So, but here I am. Uh, I'm blessed with a beautiful family. I have many friends. I'm here serving, and I have a you know, wonderful church here. And um, thank God for that. So this is my testimony.
Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning, First Baptist Church of Flushing. How are we? Great. Now, before we enter into our time, I'd like to uh, take a moment and direct you to our bulletin. In the looking ahead, the announcements portion of our bulletin, you will find uh, the list of English coworkers. And today we're going to vote uh, informally right here for our English coworkers. Now, I'm going to name them one by one, and uh, they are as follows. Alfredo Fredericks, Angela Lee, Carol Tom, Ebert Mann, Gabriel Hasugan, Joseph Cena, Melody Ting, Soban Chu, Tabitha Williams-Brown, and Vivine Mann. Now, uh, at this point, we're going to do this uh, verbally, yays and nays. If, uh, for all who are members of the church, that means if you have gone through membership baptism class, have been interviewed, formally become members of the church, you may uh, participate in this. Now, all who are in agreement in a moment, you will say aye. All who oppose, uh, say nay. Okay, are you ready? Okay, it's not too hard, ready. Uh, all in favor, say aye. aye. All opposed? Okay, perfect. Yeah, we, we welcome the 2024 coworkers uh, of the English congregation. Now, some of you may, may feel like this is a bit of a rubber stamp and a formality, and, and to a certain extent it is. However, it's also important for us to, to see the uh, connected names and the people uh, who are the leaders and the shepherds of the congregation. These are the people you can turn to if you have uh, any, any needs, any prayer requests. We, we care, and, and we want you to seek us out. And if you have any complaints, uh, we also want to hear, please email Pastor Gary at <laughs> fbcflushing.org. He loves hearing those. Now, uh, we live in a time... Nope. <laughs> Can we start over? We live in a time and a place that values assertiveness, competitiveness, and self-confidence. New York uh, Times columnist uh, David Brooks has an article, and he said that we are an overconfident species. To back up the claims, he cites an array of different statistics, studies, observations, and he says 94% of college professors believe they have above-average teaching skills. 
A survey of high school students found that 70% of them have above average leadership skills and only 2% are below average. And when pollsters ask people from around the world to rate themselves on different traits, Americans usually supply the most positive self-ratings. Now, although American students do not perform well on global math tests, they are among the world leaders in having self-confidence about their math abilities. In other words, they might not have the right answer, but they feel real good about themselves as they're bubbling it in. Men uh, tend to especially be blessed with self-esteem. Men are victims of unintentional drowning more than twice as often as women. That's because men have this tremendous faith in their own swimming ability, especially after they've been drinking. Now, the humorist Dave Barry has this to add, the one thing that unites all human beings regardless of age, gender, religion, economic status, or ethnic background is that deep down inside, we all believe that we are above average drivers. Now, we're not gonna take a poll here, but I have this feeling that many of us who are sitting here right now are saying to ourselves, yeah, there are a lot of bad drivers out there. I'm just glad I'm not one of them, right? Is that you? Is that you? You see yourself like the main character in Gran Turismo, right? I see my own lines on Sanford Avenue. You are above average. And as we live as people in this uh, cultural environment, it's understandable why the third beatitude just seems so foreign to us. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But is it really true? Maybe the meek will inherit the earth, but only if no one else objects. The meek inheriting this earth? Really? If we're truly honest with ourselves, I think even the most devout among us will find that this is quite a tough word to swallow. Because deep down inside, we don't really believe it. We live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world where only the fittest survive, where nice guys finish last, and where might makes right. But what we find here in this third beatitude is one of the great paradoxes of life. Paradox is like a, a riddle. It challenges the logic of the world, where apparent contradictions turn out to be true, and it, it reshapes the way we see reality. The paradoxical nature of this beatitude uh, can be appreciated, comprehended, and, and embraced only when we've embraced the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom doesn't work in the same way that our world works. God's kingdom operates according to the law of inversion, where up is down and down is up. In God's kingdom, the last shall be first. In God's kingdom, it's when we die that we truly live. In God's kingdom, strength comes through weakness. In God's kingdom, it's when we're poor, then we're truly rich. The least is the greatest and giving is receiving. We see the law of inversion and the paradoxical nature of God's kingdom perfectly embodied in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin writes this, all good which could be thought or desired is to be found in Jesus Christ alone, for he was humbled to exalt us. He became a slave to free us. He became poor to enrich us. He was sold to redeem us, made captive for our deliverance. He was made a curse for our blessing. 
He was marred that we might be restored. He died for our life. And so the Lord Jesus is not only the author uh, of the great paradoxes, Jesus actually lived the paradoxes. And as we walk in the way of Jesus, we too are going to embody the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of God. We're going to discover how a life of meekness is not only a life of blessing, it's actually essential to living the Christian life as God has intended it to be lived out. And one of the means through which God's glory is displayed in us. John Piper says, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount so that his father would get the glory for the way the disciples lived. His aim was to create a lifestyle in his disciples that would make people think about the value of God. So today, as we camp out in the third beatitude, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, my prayer is that it's going to do this profound work in shaping people like me and you to become the kind of people Uh, that God wants us to be, to be vessels set apart for noble purposes, useful to the master, ready for every good work. Now, in order to do that, we're going to need to unpack the third beatitude by answering two simple questions, two questions only. First, what does it really mean to be meek? What does it really mean to be meek? What does it look like to be uh, meek? And second, will the meek really inherit the earth? How does that happen? So at this point, we're going to pray, and then we're going to invite the Lord to speak to us, and after that, we'll jump into our text. Would you bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that the truths of the Beatitudes would sink down deep into us, and that it would do its work. Lord, all of us come with holes that need to be filled and certainly in this area of meekness we confess that we need your help teach us lord to be people who are humble people who are gentle people who are truly meek replace in us those feelings of entitlement those feelings of self-pity the tendency to be defensive the selfish ambition that lives inside us replace it with a new spirit that's characterized by the spirit's fruit help us now we pray in jesus name Amen. All right, first, what does it mean to be meek? What does it mean to be meek? Now, perhaps it will be most helpful to define meekness by starting out with what meekness is not. Meekness, first and foremost, is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Maybe it's because uh, language is this living thing and and the usage of words uh, can morph over time, but meekness in our day does not have the most positive of connotations. In our day, meekness seems to convey a certain like squishiness or lack of a backbone, uh, uh, and and that's absolutely not what it means uh, in the third beatitude. Secondly, meekness is also not Christian nice. Meekness is not Christian nice. Do you know what I mean when I mention Christian nice? There's this like unspoken but very prevalent notion within the church that to be Christian is to be Christian nice. If there's an emoji that captures it, I think you saw it already, emoji that captures Christian nice, it would be this one, right? Now, I'm not trying to call anyone out for using this emoji, uh, and if I can be completely honest, I have to confess that looking at my own phone, this is the number one emoji that I use myself. So I'm the number one offender of Christian nice. 
But what Christian nice actually is, is politeness. Um, it is always saying please and thank you. It's being agreeable, pleasant to be around. Uh, it's using your smile to disarm. It's avoiding arguments and disagreements for the sake of harmony. And I, I hope you understand that I am in no way trying to denounce Christian nice, because if you ask me, and I think you would all agree, if we had to choose uh, one or the other, I certainly prefer a pleasant, agreeable person to a cantankerous and curmudgeonly person, right? We prefer someone who is nice. But what I'm trying to say here is that Christian nice is not the same as meekness. You can be meek and not Christian nice. Because after all, if Christian nice were meekness, most New Yorkers would not be allowed to become Christians. Recently, I saw this post on Instagram where there's this guy from L.A. He's talking about how stressful it was for him to go into a New York City bagel shop uh, to order a bagel. Then the guy starts talking about uh, his interaction. And there in the bagel store, he asks for a, quote, scoop gluten-free bagel. Now, uh, for those of us who are not acquainted with uh, what a scoop bagel is, let, let, me, let me help you with that. It's an L.A. thing where people will ask for the insides of the bagel uh, to be scooped out so that the bagel will be lower calorie and lower carb. Yeah, I'm as outraged as you are. <laughs> now, this guy asked for this in New York, and the guy behind the counter is like, I am not scooping your freaking bagel, bro. <laughs> he didn't use freaking, but I cannot use the word that he used here in church. Now, the L.A. guy, though, is undeterred. And then he counters by saying, but that's how I want it. And the bagel store guy is like, get out of here with that, bro. But the real gold is in the comments section because New Yorkers showed up. The top comment read, read I have never been more proud of New Yorkers than when they denied this guy his scoop bagel. Another person said, scoop yourself back to L.A., homie. <laughs> Third one says, nothing more stressful than when an L.A. dude comes to NYC to talk about nonsense. And finally, one person said, some people just have that punch me face. Okay, that last one probably crossed the line. But what I'm trying to say here is meekness doesn't mean you got to scoop some guy's bagel just because it's the nice thing to do. But we're not really talking about bagels here, are we? What we're really talking about is how meekness is not the opposite of assertiveness because meekness is not niceness. You can be meek and still assertive. Moreover, meekness is not a temperament thing. Uh, meekness is not a personality thing. You don't have to have the personality of a golden retriever in order to be meek. Because in the end, meekness is not having a certain disposition that you're born with, or it's not even of human will. Meekness, as it is given to us in this third beatitude, is the result of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Meekness, as it's given to us in this third beatitude, is the result of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. So having looked at what meekness is not, what is meekness actually? The word in the original language for meekness is prouse. Prouse carries the, the meaning of strength under control. Now, the Greek historian and philosopher uh, Xenophon uh, once wrote about how Greek war horses were trained and made to become meek. One person uh, uh, points out that in his work, The Art of Horsemanship, 
Xenophon uh, describes the selection and training of war horses, and he writes, quote, the Greek army would find the wildest horses in the mountains. They would bring them in to be broken in. After months of training, they sorted the horses into categories. Some were discarded, some were broken and made useful for bearing burdens, some were useful for ordinary duties, and the fewest of all graduated as war horses. When a horse passed the conditioning required for a war horse, its state was described as prouse, that is, meek. The war horse was meek. It had power under control. It had strength under control. A war horse never ceased to be determined, strong, passionate. However, it learned to bring its nature under discipline. It gave up its being wild, its unruly nature, out of control and rebelliousness. It would now respond to the slightest touch of the rider. It would stand in the face of combat. It would thunder into battle, and it would stop at a whisper. Xenophon used, um, the, the, Xenophon used the adjective prouse to describe these war horses. Strength under control. Now, keeping this working definition of strength under control in mind, consider two of the greatest characters in the Bible who are described as meek. The first is Moses. In Numbers 12.3, uh, whose writing is actually uh, attributed to Moses himself, Moses wrote, Now the man, Moses, was very meek, above all men which were upon the face of the earth. Now, I use the King James Version because the newest version of the NIV replaced the word meek and put humble uh, in there. And I put in meekness um, instead just to keep it consistent. Now, a long time ago, I thought it was the funniest verse because it was Moses himself literally saying how meek and humble he was, which doesn't sound all that meek and humble. But as I've come to understand the, the verse in its context, I realize it makes all the sense in the world. The context of the verse is that the people who were closest to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, they were turning against Moses because of Moses' Cushite wife, her darker complexion. More than that, they themselves were jockeying for a position for authority, claiming that Moses didn't have exclusive access to God, for God spoke through them also. And what the verse about Moses being the meekest person on earth really is about is about how Moses wasn't about to get defensive over these attacks, these slights. He had this strength under control. He had submitted his own will to the will of God. And so now he had no need to defend himself. As it has been said, a lion doesn't concern itself with the opinion of sheep. Moses entrusted himself to God. And in the verses that followed, God intervened and God judged Miriam. It's amazing because Miriam was mocking Moses' Cushite wife for her dark skin. And so God made Miriam leprous. Now, in, in case you missed the symbolism, let, let me try to break it down. Uh, Miriam thought she was racially superior because she was light-skinned. And so God was like, you like being pale, huh? Let me make you white, like real white. And in his meekness, Moses entrusted everything to God, and God fought for Moses. Mind you, Moses was meek, but no one would ever call Moses weak, would they? 
Because this was the same man who slew an Egyptian, who started a revolt in Egypt, who led 2.5 million rebellious people through the wilderness. He wasn't weak, but his power was under control. He had complete submission to God, and that made him the definition of meekness. Now, the second person who is the embodiment of meekness is Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. King James Version once again. Now, once again, when we look at the life of Jesus, uh, we don't see a weak person. Certainly the money changers that he drove out of the temple wouldn't call him weak. Jesus was flipping over tables. He was whipping those greedy men out of the house of the Lord. The religious leaders wouldn't call Jesus nice either. The way Jesus rebuked the hypocrisy of the religious traditions, the way he confronted the Pharisees at every turn, no one would say that Jesus was pleasant or Christian nice. But Jesus was the embodiment of meekness because Jesus was willing to accept and he was willing to submit without resistance to the will and desire of the Father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed, he asked God the Father if there was another way by which humanity could be saved, then let that cup pass from him. And yet, in the end, Jesus prays, yet not my will, but your will be done. As one person noted, the ultimate expression of Jesus' meekness was depicted when he had the power and ability to release 12,000 angels at the snap of his finger before and during his crucifixion. And yet he refrained to atone and redeem humankind. In his selfless act of power under control, what it revealed was his grace, his compassion, his agape love. And when we take this understanding of meekness and these examples of meekness, we start to get a sense of what meekness really is. Because it's ultimately about strength under control. It's a, this sense in which meekness is a gentleness that comes about in not having to have your own way. You can be meek, you can be assertive, and you can be passive and yet not be meek at all. Because meekness has to do with letting go of insisting on your own way. It's not a measure of self-confidence. It's not a measure of assertiveness or ability. Now, the eminent theologian Oz Guinness shares a keen insight about meekness. He says that the counterpoint to meekness is actually anger. Because what sets us off often has to do with things that threaten our own self-interest. Anger is never far when we carry with us this sense of entitlement. I deserve this kind of treatment. I deserve that level of service. This is owed to me. If I cannot have it, I will become angry. And in my anger, I'll find a way to get it. I'll raise my voice, and if that doesn't work, I will ask to speak to the manager. A sense of entitlement stirs up anger and is contrary to meekness. There's another reason that we can get angry, and it's out of this sense of self-pity. We may feel that this thing shouldn't be happening to us, that we don't deserve this, that we're angry and we're not going to stand for it. And, and this anger ends up uh, uh, consuming us and, and causing us to wallow in our own self-pity. Whereas meekness is strength under control, anger is becoming out of control. The Roman philosopher Seneca has this to say about anger. If you choose to view its results 
and the harm of it, no plague has caused the human race more dear. You will see bloodshed and poisoning, the vile countercharges of criminals, the downfall of cities and whole nations given to destruction, princely persons sold at public auctions, houses put to the torch, the congregation of, um, that halts not within the city walls make great stretches of the country glow with hostile flame, like a wildfire consuming and swallowing up everything in its path. Anger on both a personal level and also on a level of the society has the power to cause great harm. And that is why the truly blessed life is the life that's characterized by meekness. Because as a Christian is transformed by grace, they start to see that everything good in their life is of grace. And, and they willingly submit to the good and sovereign plan of God, even when things don't go according to their own plans. Knowing that God's divine approval and love is all that they really need carries with it this great freedom so that the meek person can choose to let go of defensiveness. They can choose to let go of having to prove that they're right. They can choose to let go of having to even prove themselves. Now, many of us carry with us this, this baggage in our natural selves. Many of us are, are desperately trying to cling on to a certain image that we want the world to see. We do it by what we wear, the people we associate with, the way we speak, how we curate our digital lives. It, it's an in, outside-in approach, a fake it until you make it a way of doing life. And quite honestly, it can be exhausting. More than that, we get very defensive when that image is attacked. When people try to point out that we're not quite as great as we project ourselves to be. But for the Christian, who has learned the value of meekness, life looks different. There's a sweetness that emanates from the inside out, outwardly wasting away, inwardly being renewed day by day. The growing Christian experiences this freedom over the grip of self-defensiveness because they see the darkness of their own sin. And what they realize is that any criticism isn't even close to the darkness that they and God know because their identity is now bound up in Christ, they're no longer interested in glorifying self as much as making much of Jesus. Because like Moses, God will vindicate and God will fight on our behalf so then we can simply rest confidently in God's love and care. Now that we've looked at what it means to be meek, we can accept that there's a certain measure of blessing that we're gonna result, that will result as, as we uh, embrace meekness. But then it leads us to the second question, is it really true? Will the meek really inherit the earth? Now, to truly appreciate uh, the, the truthfulness of the promise, it's going to be helpful to remember that the beatitude is actually a callback of Psalm 37, where it's first used in Psalm 37, 11. Now, in Psalm 37, the, the psalmist makes it uh, abundantly clear that as the people of God commit their way to the Lord in meekness and trust, uh, God will grant them a land. And in, in the psalm, uh, a physical land is in view. What's important to remember in the promise, both in Psalm 37 and right here in our beatitude, is that this land is an inheritance. This is an inheritance. An inheritance is not something we earn. Uh, an inheritance is not something we work for. And if you have to fight for your inheritance, then something has really gone wrong. Instead, an inheritance is something that's given to you. It's passed down from one generation to the next. What's mine will one day 
be passed down to my kids. And so it is with God. As the children of God, there will come a day when Jesus returns. And everything will come under submission to God. And we as God's kids will get to reign with God. And all that is his will be ours as well as his inheritance and our inheritance. We will one day inherit the earth. But there's even more to this. In the here and now, there's a sense in which the, the meek do inherit the earth in the here and now. I love how, how Haddon Robinson says it, and I'm going to read this uh, quote verbatim. It's an extended quote. He goes, it's also true that the arrogant and the power seekers don't inherit the earth. Hitler followed Napoleon and countless others in his quest for world domination, but God was not on the side of the biggest cannons. Hitler ran into the God in the form of a Russian winter and army, and the German people never became masters of the world. Throughout history, nations such as Assyria, Babylonia, and, and Rome have seemed invincible, but if we judge them on a given Tuesday, and if we judge them on a given Tuesday, we might even believe it. But if we examine them, not by the day, but by years, we discover that the arrogant and the power mad do not inherit the earth. What's true with nation is true in the animal world. Lions and tigers should be in control. Lambs should not be bang anymore. If we were, that was pretty good. Did you like that? <laughs> if we were betting people, no doubt, we would place our money on the eagle rather than on the sparrow. And yet, the lion, the tiger, and the eagle are endangered species. Plenty of sparrows and lambs. The arrogant and powerful do not inherit the earth. The people of Moscow and Washington don't seem to understand this. They may wipe out a good part of the earth with nuclear weapons, but they will never control it. The arrogant are not even those who win in personal relationships. No one wants a rude and self-seeking friend. Folks who surround such people want something from them. They don't want their friendship. Those hungry for power are lonely people. They think they possess the earth, but the earth possesses them. They always want more, and soon the envy, the desire for more is controlling them. In restaurants, they fight over the best table. At airline counters, they become hostile if they can't get the window seats. In the end, all they get are ulcers. They are miserable people. No one wants such people as friends. The kind, gentle, the gracious, at least enjoy the earth, whatever they have of it. When they see who they are before God, they know anything they receive is of grace. Judgment is what they deserve, and knowing that, they keep power under control, living gentle and meek lives, knowing that one day, God will give the earth to them. Now, I'd like to close with a, a quote from this children's story called The Velveteen Rabbit. Have you ever read The Velveteen Rabbit? No? You guys don't read, don't, do you? All right, so the Velveteen Rabbit's about this uh, Velveteen Rabbit. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, you ever, you ever uh, have to uh, take a test and you haven't read the book and you try to start to write something? It's like, oh, the Hunger Games about people who are really hungry and need to play this game. <laughs> In any case, the Velveteen Rabbit is about this rabbit. He has this like genuine longing to become real. And, and so the, the rabbit asks, the skin horse, who's the oldest uh, toy in the nursery and is always kind to rabbit, he asks the skin horse, what is real? And the skin horse tells him, real is the thing that happens to you. 
when a child loves you for a long, long time, and not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Now the, the rabbit thinks about it for a moment and then follows up with another question. Well, does it hurt? Skin horse tells him, sometimes, for he was always truthful, when you're real, though, you don't mind being hurt. Then the, the rabbit asks again, does it happen all at once, like being wound up, or bit by bit? And then the skin horse says, it doesn't happen all at once. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily, or have sharp edges, or who have been carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. Ever feel that way in the morning? But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I love this so much. And I think it illustrates what meekness is all about. Meekness is discovering that God's loving approval is what really matters most. We only care about what God thinks. Uh, we become uh, people who embody meekness because we don't get worked up over what anyone else says or what they try to do to us. When we are, when we are real in God's eyes, we can live freely. We can live meekly, knowing that there's nothing that you need to approve because your life is spent loving God and being loved by him. That's why, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for, for the gift of your word. Thank you that, that uh, we are loved by you and that we get to love you in this life. Help us to, to know this, not just in our minds but in our hearts and, and to live it out so that we can let go of all the entitlement, self-defensiveness, all those things that we don't need. Help us to simply want more of you and be satisfied with that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please rise, sing in the response song, This is the Kingdom.
Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you to First Baptist Church, everyone here in the sanctuary, as well as those of you joining us online. 
And if you are visiting for the first time, if you could please raise your hand and raise your hand up high. The ushers have a card they would like to give you. And if you could please complete that card and then bring it to the Welcome Center, which is right outside these exit doors. And there'll be somebody here to greet you and to tell you more about the church and that we hope that you enjoyed your time with us today and that you felt welcome and would come back again. And I'd like to give you the opportunity to rise from your seats and welcome one another. And uh, the question is, uh, what is your favorite childhood toy? So maybe it wasn't a velveteen rabbit, it was, maybe it was something else. <laughs> Now for a few announcements. There will be an annual meeting next Sunday, January 28th at 1230, right here in the South Sanctuary. And this is for all FBCF members. And the annual report is ready. And please take one copy per family. FBCF will have uh, English congregation monthly prayer meeting will be Saturday, January 27, from 11 o'clock to 12.30, and it meets in the college and career room. The 2023 offering receipts are already emailed, so please check your email. If you did not receive your receipt, please contact Mei Ling at fbcflushing.org. Monday noon prayer meeting is on Zoom. Please join Pastor Aaron and others as they pray over the needs, great and small, with the FBCF family. And if you're interested, please contact Pastor Aaron for more details. And join us in adding a touch of spring to the sanctuary and contribute to beautifying our worship space with floral arrangements. 
The cost is $25 for the week and sign up with Angela Lee. And now I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward to receive today's offering. Please join me in bowing our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love and faithfulness. Thank you for Pastor Aaron's message today, um, the reminder to, to be meek, Lord, and to submit ourselves to your perfect will. Father, forgive us when we want our way and when we're proud. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to give these offerings to you and to give sacrificially and to give joyfully. And Father, we pray that you would multiply these gifts, that you would use it to further your kingdom, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Rise for the benediction. Receive the benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord bless you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you